Empower Radio presents the Dr. Julie Show, all things connected. Break through the illusion of separation, explore the infinite field of possibility, and make connections that inspire. Now, here's your host, Dr. Julie Crawl. Hello and welcome everyone. You're listening to the Dr. Julie Show, All Things Connected. I'm Dr. Julie Kroll. Hey, some say the world is in crisis and you probably may agree with that statement. It needs people who've had the skill to combine inner power with outer action. Archbishop Desmond Tutu says that the quality of your awareness will directly affect the quality of the results you produce. And anyone can develop this inner power to build their own personal contribution to the future and to a world that works for all. So how, you might ask, how can you develop that? Well, Archbishop Desmond Tutu recommends that you read the book, of our guest today, and I also recommend the same. I ask you to take a few deep breaths, and I invite you to bring your awareness into this moment, open your mind, connect with your heart, and settle into your essential self as I welcome and introduce our guest. She's a three-time Nobel Peace Prize nominee and 2003 Nawano Peace Prize recipient. It's Dr. Scylla Elworthy. She founded the Oxford Oxford Research Group in 1982 to develop effective dialogue between nuclear weapons policymakers worldwide and their critics. She founded Peace Direct in 2002 to fund, promote, and learn from local peace builders in conflict areas. And she is the author of Pioneering the Possible, Awakened Leadership for a World That Works. Welcome, Dr. Elworthy. I'm very happy to be with you, Judy. Mm, Thank you. I am really happy that you're here and very honored. You your whole career has has really been something that I look up to and admire and hope that that my body of work sometime can just reflect a fraction of that. So thank you for joining us here today. We have a traditional question that I like to start the show off with, Dr. Elworthy. So I'm going to start with that. And that is, Dr. Elworthy, what does all things connected mean to you? Mm. Well, it it reminds me of the notion that Archbishop Tutu, who is a wonderful man, that he very often introduces. It's called Ubuntu, and it's a prevalent tradition in southern Africa, and it means exactly what you've just said, all things connected. And the way he expresses it is, and the way people in Southern Africa, understand it is, I am because you are. In other words, I exist because you exist. And I love this concept because it's ancient. It's an ancient concept going back centuries in Africa, but it's also exactly what quantum physicists have been discovering uh, in the past hundred years. And it's now becoming much clearer to anybody who has woken themselves up 
that everything in our world is interconnected. And um, wonderful teachers like Thich Nhat Hanh would say everything is interdependent, as the great Buddhist teachers all say. Mm. Thank you for that. You know, I I know even one of your chapters in your books talks about that interconnectedness and and I love that interdependence. We're going to talk about that in a minute. But I really want to give our listeners a little bit of background of who you are. You've had an incredible career, but I'm really curious, this passion to do something about the state of our world, I know for you began at a very young age. Can you tell us a little bit about your story and what brought you here to this moment in time? With, with, with pleasure. Um, I was born in Scotland. Um, and I was the fifth child in a, a series. My, I had four older brothers. So I always was trying to keep up with them, and I became quite competitive doing that. Um, and when I was about 11 years old, they taught me to fire a shotgun uh, that they used for um, basically for shooting birds. And I was so pleased with myself and so feeling so kind of cocky and independent that I went by myself out to the woods and I took the gun and I stood totally taboo thing to do, forbidden. I stood underneath the nest of a bird high up in the trees and I pointed the barrels up and pulled the trigger. And down on my head rained pieces of stick and egg yolk and eggshell and even embryos of tiny chicks, and the beautiful sky-blue feathers of the mother bird. And I was so shocked by what I had done and the violence of it that I took the gun home and never touched it again. And I think that had something to do with my revulsion for violence and my wish to dedicate all my strength to trying to stop the, the debris of war, the, the, the fallout of war. So um, when I was a couple of years older, uh, it was actually in 1956, I was in my parents' living room watching a grainy old black and white TV, and I watched the Soviet tanks rolling into Budapest in Hungary, and with such violence that they were mowing down the young teenage protesters, not much older than me, who were throwing themselves at the tanks to try and stop them. And I was so um, horrified by what I was watching that I ran upstairs and started packing my suitcase. And my mother came up and said, what are you doing? And I said, I'm going to Budapest. I didn't even know where Budapest was. Um, I was 13 years old, I think. And she said, what on earth for? And I said, there's something terrible happening there, and I have to go. And typical sort of um, slightly Victorian Jewish mother, she said, don't be so silly. And I burst into tears. And bless her, she got it. She understood how much this mattered to me. 
And she said, listen, you're much too young to be any use, but I can understand what's, what's driving you, what bothers you. And if you'll just unpack your suitcase, I will ensure that you get trained to be useful. And that's what she did. Mm. Yeah. What a beautiful story. And it, it kind of brings me into the framework for our conversation today because this little girl is prepared to go out and make a difference and, and wow, you've worked with you know policymakers worldwide and done some incredible things. And this latest piece of work that you're doing with this book, Pioneering the Possible, and I know a few other projects you're working on, brings it to the to the real personal level, again, just like to any one of those little girls that might be 13-year-old saying, I need to make a difference. And this book really taps into that inner power and that inner sense of leadership. So I love that story and, and it does bring us into this conversation. So let's, you know, you invite the readers to pioneer the possible and let's talk about that for a minute. What is the possible and what do you hold for a vision of the future and, and what is this awakened leadership all about? Mm, well, big question. Um, it, it stems from my belief that uh, or my, my knowledge through working in world politics for quite a while that um, the crises that are now arriving in the, on the planet both the environmental crisis, the financial crisis, the, um, the, the violence that we're witnessing, and the instability are um, all uh, mounting and will get worse. And they're almost inviting humanity to develop its consciousness. Uh, it's almost as though we're being challenged to wake up and to move into a more aware state where, where we have much more power and resilience to deal with what we have essentially caused in the world. So that's the short answer. <laughs> you can ask me other questions if you want a longer answer. Well, you know, that really that right there is an important piece because you talk about this consciousness that it's not just a shift in consciousness. I put this out on social media this morning. It's a beautiful quote, but it really is about a leap of consciousness. Um, and one of the things that you do that's, that's really different than other leaders who are talking about the consciousness movement and this evolution of our consciousness is you broke them down into really four really nice pieces. You talk about perspective, interconnectedness, blazing intelligence, and the balance between masculine and feminine. And you're inviting us to take this leap. Let's talk about those, if you would. Mm, well, um, the one that leaps to my mind immediately is blazing intelligence, because <clears throat> I live in the very heart of England. And um, when I walk down beside the river, I encounter a massive oak tree. It must be three or four hundred years old. And uh, I'm, I'm in awe of these trees because uh, just imagine this, that the wood of an oak tree, an old oak tree, 
is so hard you can barely cut it with a chainsaw. And yet, in the spring, it manages to drive up through this enormously solid trunk and all the branches, tons and tons of liquid sap. And that ends up in the tiny twigs, which then produce the leaves and eventually acorns. And acorns fall to the ground with each one having a 400-year business plan built into it. Mm. So this makes me just stand back in awe of nature and not just the beauty of nature, but the sheer intelligence that surrounds us. You know, human beings are not capable of making artificially a rose, but nature can make it abundantly everywhere all the time. So I, I'm, this is, this is one, one of the aspects of the shift in intelligence the shift in consciousness that we have to make, I think, is to regain our awe and respect for this beautiful, exquisite world that surrounds us and take responsibility for what we've done to it, what we've paved over, the, what we've built incredibly buildings on, what we've excavated in their minds, where we've totally polluted the oceans with plastic and sewage and debris. So that's one aspect. The um, interconnectedness one is one that um, really occurs to me when I'm in um, war areas, when I, I do a lot of work and support a lot of work in hot conflict countries. And there I see what happens when local people decide to build peace themselves. And they can only do that by experiencing their interconnectedness with others who would otherwise be their enemies. And that they then have the courage to build bridges with other tribes, people of other religions, and do the grueling, absolutely not um, glamorous work of getting across the divides that separate us. So I, I love and honor, honor them for that. And that entails a major growth in awareness to be able to do that. And the one that is really driving a lot of the work that I currently do is the uh, rebalancing of yin and yang in the world, what we might call the deep feminine with the deep masculine. Obviously, this is not a question of gender because the deep feminine is available to men just as it is to women and the deep masculine likewise to women. So what we're talking about is recognizing that for the last 2,000 years, our society has grown increasingly yang-based. We're increasingly... Uh, addicted to uh, speed, to uh, measuring absolutely everything, to thinking in terms of straight lines, to excluding people we don't like, and so forth, and, uh, and competing. 
absolutely competition is a very big aspect of a yang-based world. And what is so uh, tragically missing is the yin. And the yin as I see it, the deep feminine, if you like, is about inclusivity, about uh, just as a, a mother in a family or a father in a family will want to include others, want to include the children's friends, want to include people that they don't necessarily agree with, this willingness to bring people together. That's one big aspect of it. Another major aspect of the yin is the care for the earth, the the realization of how deeply our human assistance is now needed, not just for what people call sustainability, but going much further than that to help the earth and assist her to regenerate because her waters have been spoiled and dried up, her seas have been uh, 100% fished out, Uh, her forests have been burned, and now it's the time for forgetting the idea that we're the owners of the earth because we are not. We are the stewards of the earth, and it's our job to look after it in such a way that, as all the indigenous peoples tell us, we must leave it safe for seven generations hence in the decisions we make today. So those are just some aspects of what I see as the leap in consciousness that we have to make. Does that make sense to you? Yes, absolutely. And I really appreciate how you've talked about these these really different pieces of that and, and especially this balancing the masculine and feminine in leadership as far as awakened leadership because you know we hear we there's this big movement toward a lot of feminine awakening and so many times um, especially through the 60s over here in the U.S., we thought that the women's right movement was like a ticket to compete with the guys like the guys. And what you're suggesting is really balancing both of those energies for all of us, even male leaders, and, and really bringing the fullest expression of who we are as yin-yang, as masculine-feminine. And I really appreciate that. It's a new way of looking at leadership. Mm, I hope so. And it seems to be resonating very, very widely. Um, The organization that we've recently set up, which I'll talk about later, it's called Rising Women, Rising World, is just being deluged by inquiries uh, from people who are interested in this rebalancing of yin and yang, particularly. So it's, it's definitely touched a chord with hundreds of thousands of people. Yes. Yes. And I, I really appreciate that. The other thing about your book that I, I, I think is really helpful for the readers is that you take these concepts of consciousness and this leap in consciousness, and then you really turn them around into kind of new memes, like the new normal. And there's many of those of, of really looking at 
the a different norm i think is how you call it in the book and and so all of these are expanded into really powerful memes for our future and and stepping into our awakened leadership Hmm. One of the things that I learned as I wrote the book, and honestly and truly, you really only write books to understand what you think or understand what your gut feeling is telling you. And one of the things I found was that um, a lot of the values that are kind of inculcated into our societies are now stale and outdated. Um, For example... We were taught as children uh, that survival of the fittest is, you know, what happens. Nature is red and tooth and claw. And this is just so not true of what is needed in our world today because we know that cooperation is cheaper and works better. And it's now been shown in study after study that uh, survival of the fittest isn't even what was meant by those scientists like Darwin. So um, I think it's it, it became important to me while I was writing the book to l- examine these values that we've held for so long and question them and see from the experiences I've had what I believe is replacing them what I pick up from people all over the world. Uh, and, and so I named, I think, 10 old stale values and uh, indicated what is, what is taking their place, particularly among the millennials. That's the people born between 1980 and 2000, who are now so numerous that they will be 50% of the workforce in 2020. So the millennials are a really important segment of our society. And by the, by the, what's indicated by the surveys is that their values are completely different to the preceding generation and their consumer patterns will be completely different. So I find that very interesting and very exciting. Is it exciting in a way that you see, um, I see a lot of positive with the millennials. I see them, a lot of really conscious young adults wanting to make a difference, not attached to consumerism. And yet there's, there's others. How, how do you, when you think about this generation, um, what's the greatest strength of the millennials? I think it's what they're prioritizing. Um, what they're putting at the top of their priorities is the planet, the environment, and people. Uh, They indicate that they don't want to work for companies that don't listen to their employees. So a lot of CEOs are spending sleepless nights now wondering how they will recruit millennials who turn their noses up at old-fashioned, very distant workplaces where conflicts are not addressed, where people are very separated from one another, where uh, aggressiveness is rewarded, where 
the values of trustworthiness and so forth are not highly rated. So millennials are, are really stating their criteria that those issues, those those um, subjects like the environment, like uh, consumption, like the way we use our resources are more important to them than profit and even more important to them than the salaries they earn. So many, many of them are turning away from big corporations and becoming social entrepreneurs. And I can tell you more about that if you wish. Okay. Yeah, they're, you know, it's really incredible to watch the millennials and I really appreciate you talking about the values and, and you talk about how when we can really examine those values that underlie our decisions, we begin to act differently. We lead differently. We make better choices. And so, um, it's really encouraging to hear you talk about the millennials in that same fashion because that's what's happening. I would like to hear more about that, but we're going to take a break in just a minute. But before we do, I want to make sure our listeners know how to find you and your work. Do you want to share your website with us and the best way to contact you? Mm-hmm. Well, my, my website you find by just Googling my name. That's Scylla, spelled S-C-I-L-L-A, dot Elworthy. And I think it's... Well, I ought to know this, shouldn't I? Dot com. But anyway, if you just Google my name, you'll find it. You'll find all sorts of TED Talks, <clears throat> excuse me, that I've done. One of them's just hit a million views, which made me very happy because it was a TED Talk about nonviolence. And um, you can also look on the website of Rising Women, Rising World, all one word, uh, dot org. Uh, and... Uh, that's really the best way to uh, find out what we're doing and find out a bit more about the book and so forth. Yes. And I just want to remind our listeners that the book is called Pioneering the Possible, Awakened Leadership for a World that Works. And we're visiting with Dr. Scylla Elworthy. And you can find her at SillaElworthy.com, S-C-I-L-L-A, E-L-W-O-R-T-H-Y. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back with more with Dr. Scylla Elworthy. I'm home and I love it. I'm home where I belong. I'm home and I love it. I'm home where I belong. It's always nice to come home, but these days, many Americans are at risk of foreclosure and losing their homes. Fortunately, help is available. Making Home Affordable is a free program from the U.S. government that has already helped over a million struggling homeowners, and we want to help you. I'm home. I'm home. And I love it. I'm home. I'm home. Find out now what your options are. Go to makinghomeaffordable.gov or call 1-888-995-HOPE. The sooner you act, the better chance we can help you. I'm home, I'm home, where I be. Brought to you by the U.S. Treasury, HUD, and the Ad Council. Sassy! Sassy! This week's episode, Danger at the Old Well. Last one to the old well's a rotten egg! Ha ha, I win! Whoa! 
Johnny fell down the well. I'm wet. What, Sassy? You know where Mr. Gunderson keeps his rope? Go get it, girl. What? You'd rather use this time to set people straight about shelter pet adoption? I'm cold. People shouldn't be afraid to adopt from a shelter? Because shelter pets are screened for sound health and temperament? I'm wet and cold! Sassy, what about Johnny? <laughs> what? Let Johnny sit in the well until he learns to be more self-reliant? Sassy! What do you say? Sassy is brought to you by the Ad Council and the shelterpetproject.org. Remember, adopt! Have you ever lost a cat? And have you ever wanted to get your cat back after you lost it? Hi there, I'm Andrew Hoffman. I went on this website called inventnow.org. Then I decided to make an invention of my own. It's called the Lost Cat Magnet Invention. So you can get your cat back after you lost it. Just turn it on and lost cats stick to it. That's a good cat. If your cat was hiding up in a tree, it won't be up a tree anymore. It will be stuck to the lost cat magnet. And sometimes they fly toward you in the air. Just listen to one satisfied cat. Yeah. See, that's proof. You should go to the inventnow.org website too. But just remember one thing. Don't do a lost cat magnet. Anything's possible. Keep thinking. Get started on your own inventions or just play some games at inventnow.org. Brought to you by the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office, the National Inventors Hall of Fame Foundation, and the Ad Council. Now, back to the Dr. Julie Show, all things connected on Empower Radio. We're back on the Dr. Julie Show, all things connected, and our guest today is Dr. Scylla Elworthy, author of Pioneering the Possible, Awakened Leadership for a World that Works. And if you enjoy what you're hearing, you can find all the archives on thedrjulieshow.com. Share it with your friends and neighbors. Um, again, please visit our website, thedrjulieshow.com. And stay connected all week on our Facebook page, All Things Connected with Dr. Julie. Sila, the we were talking about millennials right before the break, and it's... The thing that I was thinking as you were speaking is how intriguing it is that we're talking about a generation that's really global. And as I was thinking about this global culture, um, we really are making changes. And as I'm listening to you and the work that you've done promoting peace and working with policymakers worldwide, are you finding that we do have a global culture now? You're talking about um, many different topics, but really it, it feels like it's not just in the UK. It's not just in the US. It feels like we're all waking to that same, those same values, those same memes and, and that same leap of consciousness. Yes, I agree with you, Julie. Um, some of us are. <laughs> yes. Not yet nearly enough. Uh, so it's wonderful when people talk to their friends about what they're learning, share books, share songs, share uh, television shows. Um, but it, I think it is truly global. And the reason I say this is because I work with 
young social entrepreneurs from all over the planet who come to places like New York and uh, to Germany to be trained in the hard skills and the soft skills that they need to build their own passionate projects. So these are people who want to uh, start an initiative that will serve the planet in some way, either ecologically or to do with education or to do with the safety of women. Uh, and they uh, get eight weeks training. Uh, and what I offer to them when I teach them is the soft skills, as I would describe it, which are the ways of uh, running, building and running your team, uh, resolving and transforming conflicts in your team, learning to listen. I mean, most of us think we're good listeners and 95% of us are not. And so really learning to give another person your full attention while they're speaking without quietly thinking what it is you want to say in return, but really listening to them, really taking in what they're saying, really concentrating on them. That's the biggest gift you can give to another person. And they love it because it's so rare. So I believe that that capacity to really listen is what makes negotiating peace possible. And I've seen it happen countless times. Uh, and I should say particularly when I was working with nuclear weapons policymakers from all over those, well, all the nuclear nations. And I was, um, it took a long time to build this, but I, I brought together people at very high levels, but very, very, um, right away from the media, there was no journalists let anywhere near it. There was, that's why you've not heard about it. There were no communiques issued. It was completely confidential. It had to be because we were asking people to reveal who, what they really thought, not what they were supposed to think and, and imagine, and also to get to know their opposite numbers from Russia uh, or China or France or Britain and then eventually with India and Pakistan as well. And so we were bringing people in at the level of military generals, uh, intelligence uh, executives, people who ran corporations that made weapons as well as those who designed and built the warheads in big uh, major laboratories like Los Alamos. And we were bringing them together with their opposite numbers from other countries and with their informed critics. And so we had to learn to build a safe space for people of this caliber to actually listen to one another and hear what people who might violently disagree with them were saying. So that's where I cut my teeth on this question of, <clears throat> of, um, of the importance of listening. I do believe that that quality, that skill, is uh, absolutely essential for any kind of mediation and any kind of transformation of conflict. Mm. So, so when you talk when about you talk this about listening this skill... 
um, I'm thinking about your the inner power that is referenced by Archbishop Desmond Tutu when he talks about really developing that inner power. And so f- from your perspective, you've had this global, um, really audience or constituents that you brought across the table with each other and and taught a lot of these same things to help each other listen and really understand um, what how do we translate that to maybe a mother who's staying home caring for her children or maybe um, someone who is in the corporate world that wants to do something different and and leave to become an entrepreneur. How do we translate these really powerful, big concepts into just us owning that, that inner power? What does, what does that really mean to claim that inner power and to develop it? Well, the first example you gave is, is one of um, mothers who are at home with their children And many mothers and fathers are absolutely brilliant at giving their children full attention. And they all report that when they do switch off the phone, switch off the other conversation, switch off even what they're doing, and sit down and really look at their child and really hear what it is they have to say, that everything changes. So many parents are expert at this. And many are not. And so I believe that that skill developed at home, whether it's with an aged parent or somebody who needs care or with a, with a toddler who's exasperating you or uh, a teenager who's really gone silent on you, uh, the, the, the giving of unqualified full attention where you don't even have to say anything just have to be there and engage. And that resolves and transforms so many conflicts at home and potential conflicts. And I can't recommend it too highly. Um, When you ask how it translates into somebody in a business situation where they're they're perhaps feeling uncomfortable, maybe they feel that that the company they work for doesn't have real uh, values anymore, doesn't really consider their employees, that their corporate social responsibility policies are just on paper lying in the drawer, or that they really want to start out on their own and be able to do something which is true to them. Then they do need to build inner power and We build inner power by learning to listen to our own selves. And when I say that, I mean a regular practice of quietness. Uh, It's often very difficult to achieve in in a busy household, but to go out for a walk in nature where you're not um, playing an iPhone or something like that, but you're just concentrating on the moment and the steps that you're taking. Or if you can find time for a yoga session where you can really listen to your body. Or if you can just clear a space before you go to sleep, 20 minutes, half an hour, 
to breathe, just as you recommended, Julie, at the beginning of this show, to breathe deeply and listen inside. Because then, then when things calm, as they do, if we follow the breath, we're able to hear our inner voice. And that's guidance. That voice will, it knows everything we need to know. And that voice will guide us to our true north, our, get our compass bearing straight and enable us to plug into it every day and find more and more and more guidance as to what our, our soul path is. And I think people who do this on a regular basis, and it's not easy to find time, but people who do make time for it find that they are becoming more and more authentic, more in their own integrity. They're doing things in life that they're proud of instead of feel slightly ashamed of. And they're in tune with their own lodestar, their own values. And um, I believe absolutely anybody can do this. Mm. I like the words in tuned and, and aligned with it. it. It feels like that inner voice is our connection to that blazing intelligence that you were speaking of. Um, one, th- one thing that I think is important for our listeners who may be saying, I can't do enough, I can't do enough. And, and I hear in your writing that the inner peace that we create is enough and that's a part of our leadership in creating the world that works you want to speak to that for just a minute yes i do very much so because i've been dogged all my life by this inner critic that says you're not good enough and says much worse things i wouldn't treat a dog or a cat the way i treat myself (laughs) often when my when my inner critic gets out of control um and it, it really lambasts. It can, it can knock my confidence completely to pieces in a, a very short time. Um, so I had to develop a way of dealing with it because it was so very big and strong. For example, once when I was um, when <laughs> in, in, in a relationship that I had, a long relationship with my partner, and um, there came a time when I became very jealous of somebody else. And I'm not normally a jealous person, but this jealousy became like a, <coughs> like a great big monster that pinned me to my, to my pillow uh, at three o'clock in the morning. Normally it would wake me up. And, and I became terrified of it and the power of it because jealousy is a, is a terribly mean emotion. And I became frightened of what I was doing because I was so jealous and the fool I was making of myself and how I was suffering. And this monster get bigger and bigger and hairier and uh, darker almost every night it woke me up. And one night I just had enough. And so I sat up in bed and I yelled at it. And I used every bad word I could remember and I told it to just get out of here. And it deflated like a balloon. It went right down to a tiny little creature. 
and it started to run away. It was like a little, a little fly running away. And I said, come back here, come back here. I want to talk to you. I want to know what it is you're all about. What is going on that you've been waking me up every night at three o'clock in the morning? And it crept back and looked up at me and it said, I had a message for you. And I said, well, pretty strange way to try and deliver a message terrifying me every, every night. And it said, I was trying to get your attention because I have a message for you. And the message for you is that you have to learn to value yourself. You have to learn your own worth. And you must do that methodically. And I said, what, what do you mean? You can have a conversation with your inner critic. So I said, what do you mean? And it said, you, Scylla, you have to take, it's this series, you have to take two hours every day to concentrate on your own value and your own worth. And then it gave me some ideas how I should do that. Um, you know, by taking out letters from people who love me and value me and really listen, really reading them. Uh, I even went as far as sending, there were tape recorders in those days, and I sent a, a tape cassette round to friends and asked them to record what they felt about me. That was immensely reassuring. But it was also true because I said, for heaven's sake, don't say anything just to make me feel better. I want to know what you actually feel about me. And so I did all, all that for, it required me to do it for six months. And it changed my life completely. Mm. It absolutely changed my life. So there are so many things that we can do, which a lot of which I describe in the book, that are relatively simple. I don't think anybody else would have to spend two hours every day. But my, I'm, I look quite confident on the outside, but actually I can turn to jelly on the inside. And uh, so I, I had to take this seriously. But I, I believe that we all have those kind of inner monsters that, that, that uh, nail us at, at three o'clock in the morning. Mm. I love that story, and I I really appreciate how you really took control of that inner critic and and trusted the dialogue, which is so powerful. And and what I was imagining while you were talking is how important that is, not only from an individual perspective, but for our collective um, on the planet. If you know, if we all felt more in that sense of power and um, really embracing our value and our worth as individuals and as a collective, how, how different our world would be. Oh, Julie, you're absolutely right. Because even the most confident people, you know, I work quite a lot with the top executives of big corporations and many of them, many, many of them say that when you really talk to them and when they trust you, they say, I think I'm a fraud. Uh, I think I'm going to be discovered. I'm going to be unmasked as the fraud that I am. Because even at the height of their success, being paid phenomenal salaries, 
they still feel not good enough. And so the more that all of us can learn self-awareness and our own value and actually begin to love ourselves because, I mean, I was brought up in a very British kind of uh, childhood where you, it, if people loved themselves, it was kind of like a critique of them. You know, if you say that person loves themselves too much and that that's terrible. And I feel strongly that we need to bring up our children to really love and appreciate themselves. And that often starts with our bodies because in this, in this culture we're, we're encouraged, particularly as women, to think that our bodies aren't the right shape or aren't perfect or aren't beach ready. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's appalling. And uh, the first thing we have to do is learn to love ourselves as we are. And it's not just mantras and, you know, affirmations. It's very, very deep. This has to go very much more than skin deep. Mm. Good advice. Yes. And and again, this is this global thing that we've done with women on the planet. So speaking of that, I want to make sure we have a little bit of time to talk about Rising Women, Rising World. It's an initiative that you um, began with some incredible women on the planet. And I, I just want to let our listeners know what you're doing and what it's all about. Well, about three years ago, Jean Houston who happens to be in the next door room to me as I'm speaking, and Rama Mani. Jean Houston will be well-known in the States, I think, as yes, one of yes. the founders of the transformative movements, the self-knowledge and personal growth movements. And Jean is a wonderful woman, in, well into her 70s now. And Rama Mani is from Delhi in India, and has done uh, years and years of work in the UN in conflict resolution and uh, is highly aware of the sufferings of people, particularly in uh, Syria now, in Iraq, uh, the boat people coming across the Mediterranean and so on. And the three of us happened to be together at a gathering in Germany uh, with a spiritual teacher called Thomas Hubel, who is extraordinary. And we got talking, and we realized that we all held a vision of how the world could be if yin was brought back into balance with yang, as we referred to at the beginning of the program. In other words, that the deep values of the feminine, and these can be held by women or men, come back into balance with the values of the masculine. And so we thought to ourselves, what, what would it be like if we contacted the exceptional, experienced, wise women that we know all over the world and asked them to tell us what the world could be like in their field? So we found the wonderful Hazel Henderson as an economist, the great educationalist from India, Milakshi Gopinath, uh, the wonderful expert on food and water from Brazil, Thais Coral, uh, Chipo Chung, who's from Zimbabwe, but is a phenomenally good actress, appearing in, in, a, in a TV show in America at the moment on Mary Magdalene. Chipo is um, just 
such a knowledgeable person about the arts and social media. So we gathered and, and a, a great businesswoman from China. So we gathered these women together and uh, gave them the the urge and the luxury to talk about how they imagined the world could be. And we've put their visions up on the Rising Women, Rising World website. And then we've also asked them to show us and tell us what is already happening that shows that their vision is not just pie in the sky. It really works. And so, for example, uh, in the area of business, we've got many, many examples of businesses that are for social good, businesses that put uh, people and planet before profit. Uh, we've got, oh, just hundreds of inspiring examples of where these new values are really being taken uh, literally and enacted, and you can go there and see them and touch them and see them on film and read about them. And so that's one aspect of what Rising Women, Rising World does, is to inspire us to a future world that works for all. And then in order to make that even more possible, we run training courses, uh, a two-day course called Inner Action, called Inner because we share the inner power we were talking about earlier with the uh, way to make the, what you want to do in the world effective. So many people come to us because they say, I want to make a contribution. I want to do something for my community or for the planet, but I don't know how. And so we help them turn those dreams into reality. And we don't really let them leave until they've really formulated their project and made it real and be able to stand up and speak about it in public. Uh, and then we also train facilitators to train other people to do that. Now happening all over the world. Um, we're delivering these courses now in Canada and the United States in Switzerland, and shortly in uh, various countries in Africa through Chupo. Sure. Mm. So that's just a glimpse of what we do. It is a beautiful initiative, and our listeners can find that again at Rising Women, Rising World, if you Google that. And Scylla, before we leave, I want to remind our listeners they can find more about you and your work and your voice in the world at SillaLworthy.com. That's S-C-I-L-L-A-E-L-W-O-R-T-H-Y.com. And we're, we were speaking about Rising Women, Rising World. Just Google that. And the book we've been talking about today is Pioneering the Possible, Awaken Leadership for a World That Works. And speaking of a world that works, I would love in our closing here to really hear what is what is your vision for the positive future for a world that works what are you let's dream the world into being i think there's a quote in your book let me see if i can find it i think you say the future belongs to those who can see it so what is your vision for a positive future that works for everyone well um no it would take me a long time to describe the whole thing but because uh nature is my first love uh and I believe in the future, and now, we all need to be a voice for the earth, for what the earth gives us, 
for its extraordinary abundance, for the joy it gives us, and for what it needs. We only have to look around at the mess we've made of the earth to begin to see what we could do to put it right. So if we were starting from scratch, we would say, okay, what parts of our towns and cities can we turn into gardens and grow vegetables? With a wonderful spin-off that children then learn about the power and the joy of growing their own food and eating food that isn't contaminated and showing their parents how to do that and watering their plants and seeing them grow and harvesting the fruits. So that's very pragmatic and practical. Then I think we have to move towards making our cities far more livable. I picture cities where there is no longer the need for um, gas-guzzling vehicles on roads. I see it with green, what we call green lanes in England, which are grassy lanes where you can ride a bicycle or walk. But that is the predominant uh, means of passage on the ground. Any other transportation is done overhead uh, or by electrical vehicles, uh, on, on, not on concrete. And besides these grassy walkways would be running water, fresh running water. And beside the running water would be fruit trees or beautiful blossoming trees. So our cities would begin to be oases of green. And the fruit trees, when they fruited, the fruit would be for anyone. And there would be so many of these fruit trees, there would be no need to steal the fruit. You could just take it. Abundance. So that's just a little glimpse for you into how I see the future. But I could go on for hours. Oh, your glimpse is so sweet and so pristine. I love the idea of that. And I'm, I'm just calling it in with you here. I'm going to be, I'm going to be right there with you holding that vision, Scylla. Thank you so much for joining us today, Scylla. It has been such a delight to have you here. And thank you listeners for tuning in. You've been listening to the Dr. Julie show, all things connected. We'll see you right back here next week. Bye-bye.